Amen. All right. Well, uh, open up your Bibles to Isaiah. We're um, 42, Isaiah 42. If you're going to use the Pew Bible, it's on page 602, 602, Isaiah 42. Today we find ourselves in a very special place in the book of Isaiah. Four times in the book of Isaiah, we see, we read what the scholars call the servant songs. Today's passage opens with the first servant song in Isaiah. The servant songs foretell of a servant to come who accomplishes remarkable things for God, and it's obvious it's not the nation, as the servant is sent to fulfill the calling to which the nation of Israel failed. Plus, the servant songs contain kingly, messianic language. The servant to come in Isaiah is, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. With each servant song, this will become more and more obvious. And with regards to our servant song today, the disciple Matthew um, quotes this, this servant song in describing a scene when Jesus healed people. Ultimately for us today, the importance lies in what the servant song and this passage as a whole invites us to do. And what is that? God invites us to cross the line between doubt and faith, between self-absorption and Christ-devotion, to cross from death to life, from despair to joy. So will you. Isaiah 42. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise from the end of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that fills at the coastlands and their inhabitants. Let the desert and its cities lift up their voice, the villages that Kedar inhabits. Let the inhabitants of Salah sing for joy. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. The Lord goes out like a mighty man, like a man of war. He stirs up his zeal. He cries out. He shouts aloud. He shows himself mighty against his foes. For a long time, I've held my peace. I have kept still and restrained myself. Now I will cry out 
like a woman in labor. I will gasp and pant. I will lay waste mountains and hills and dry up all their vegetation. I will turn the rivers into islands and dry up the pool. And I will lead the blind in a way that they do not know. In paths that they have not known, I will guide them. I will turn the darkness before them into light, the rough places into level ground. These are the things I do, and I do not forsake them. They are turned back and utterly put to shame who trust in carved idol, who say to metal images, you are our God. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If we want to know God, if we want to know his will, if we want to know his way, then we must know his word. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word to us today. It helps us see more fully why we praise you as glorious and why you are so good to us and how our lives have now become so blessed. We pray for greater eyes of faith. Help us to see more clearly your light and your truth that we may walk in them, we pray. Amen. I know I've quoted this uh, same movie before a number of times, but it's really, really helpful. Uh, in 1991, there's a movie starring Danny Glover and uh, Kevin Klein and Steve Martin. It's called The Canyon. Maybe you've seen it. I know it's a little ways back there. You weren't even born then, man. All right. <laughs> Kevin Klein's character, Mac, he's an immigration attorney. This is taking place in L.A. And, and Mac is stuck in traffic, and so I guess he got on ways and was trying to find a shortcut. And uh, his car breaks down in the ghetto, and it's getting dark. Soon he's surrounded by gangsters. When Danny Glover's character shows up, his name's Simon. He's the tow truck driver that was called. He finally arrives, and a gangster named Rockstar has a gun to Mac's head, the attorney. Simon tries to reason with the thug and, and let them go their way. And here's what he says. He says, man, the world ain't supposed to work like this. I mean, maybe you don't know that yet. I'm supposed to be able to do my job without having to ask you if I can. That dude is supposed to be able to wait with his car without you ripping him off. Everything is supposed to be different than it is. Simon's assessment of the human predicament is right on. You felt it, haven't you? How can you not? Everything's supposed to be different than it is. There is discord, there is corruption within the very fabric of the universe, and within humanity itself. Every day of our lives, it's unavoidable, right? You cannot go on vacation without something threatening to, to disrupt your happiness. You cannot go to the doctor without fear of what may be. Add to that, everybody lives with their own self-interest in mind, not yours, and you live this way too. It's a dog-eat-dog -dog world. That's the world we live in. But deep down inside, we long for another world. C.S. Lewis helps us see that with these words. He says, listen closely, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. The problem with us isn't that we can't feel this angst. The problem with it is that we rather ignore it. And we keep on trying to find what we're looking for within creation 
instead of in our Creator. And we lean more and more into finding satisfaction in this world. To which C.S. Lewis again, sorry, two quotes from him. He says, listen, most people, if they had really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. That's what the prophet Isaiah has been dealing with in this entire letter. God is shaking his people, trying to wake them up. Stop chasing after other gods to satisfy you. Stop using me to make your life more heavenly on earth. And come with me on a journey of grace and renewal as I prepare you for the new world to come. In our passage today, God points us to his servant, the one who will bring heaven to earth one day. And his work has already begun in his people. But before you and I or anyone else can embrace this work of the servant, we must see our absolute need of help from him. See, there's a false optimism that seems to permeate all of humanity, the belief that mankind will and can solve all the problems that plague us eventually. Problem is, that's impossible. Consider this humbling truth. It's from uh, Ray Ortland Jr. says, in the whole sorry length of human history, Listen, we have failed to assemble even one human society as we ourselves would really like it to be. There are flashes of brilliance here and there, but they never last. Why is this? Why are there no societies in all of human history that have created a world that our hearts desires? The answer is us. <laughs> Humanity. We're the problem. The problem is us. And so we need someone outside to come in and do the work. And that's what God promises us in Isaiah. And he's not, a, he's not a tyrant. He's a servant. He tells the people who are living in despair to behold God's servant who will come. The question for God's people then and for us today is a similar, similar one. Will you cross the line? The line that separates a life of clinging to false saviors of this world from a life of living a life clinging to the servant. A line that says, I leave behind the old way of seeing and living, and I enter into a life where I've been set free by the servant. My friends, there's a line before us all. Will you cross it? And so here's what we must think through this morning. Here we go. We must entrust our lives to God's servant, because he alone will bring about the world and the life that our souls long for. We will look at that under two headings. First, God's servant, and then our song. We get to sing. Is there an auto-tuner on this, maybe? God's servant. Big idea here is this. God has a servant who will accomplish what mankind cannot do, create a world our souls long for. 
Have you ever found yourself in a house or a building of some sort where, where it stinks so bad, right? All right, wives, don't look at your husbands. Um, for me, it recalls a memory of um, when one of my daughters decided to make some popcorn, and she put it in the microwave and just walked away. It's not really a problem if you set the microwave to two minutes. <laughs> 20 minutes, P.U. Oh, my gosh. Couldn't get that stink out of the house for days. Let me out of here. I want a whiff of fresh air. I swear I can still smell that enough. And we have a puppy. You've all done that before, right? Been in a stench-filled room, and you go outside, and the atmosphere is completely changed. That is what's happening in the flow of Isaiah. Remember, it's just one giant scroll. There's not chapter in the book of Isaiah when it was written. And so Isaiah 41 ends with these very words of God saying, Behold, right? Behold how futile it is to cling to these false saviors. And with the very next words in our text, he says, Now, behold, my servant, your true Savior. It's meant to hit our senses like fresh spring air. And what is it that hits, that refreshes our senses? God says that his servant is going to create the world, C.S. Lewis says, our hearts long for. Three times in four verses, um, God says that his servant will bring forth justice or establish justice throughout the earth. Now, the Hebrew word translated justice is mishpat. It conveys far more than just like a legal correctness, right? It is used, listen, in Exodus 26, when God gave the plan for the tabernacle to Moses, the blueprint that God revealed from heaven. That's the word that was used there. In a similar way, God has, listen, a blueprint for our human existence. God knows how human beings in human society can be at their very best when it's lived out according to his plan. Listen, God knows how to make us happy. God knows how to fulfill our hearts with great joy. And so when we read here that God's servant will establish justice throughout the world, the word justice includes within its scope all of our longings for a better world and a better life. A just world is human society as God means it to be, with no corrupting idolatries, no more political dysfunction, no more tyrants, at every level, no more vicious attacks like Hamas on Israel, and no more conquerors like Cyrus. Remember last week, God spoke of how in 100 years, he's going to stir up Cyrus, the great king who would come and devastate all the surrounding nations. Yes, God would use this idolatrous, power-hungry king to eventually free his people from Babylon. But it would be a terrifying, bloody ordeal. Cyrus would stomp upon every nation. Fear and oppression would be his tools. In chapter 41, verse 25, we read, He, Cyrus, shall trample on rulers as on mortar, as the potter treads clay. But not God's servant. Cyrus, like every other human conqueror, stepped on people. Jesus healed people. Cyrus, clinging to his idols of power and fame, 
Jesus left power and fame and the glory of heaven, and he emptied himself and in humility took on human form. See how verse 2 describes Jesus. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. In one sense, this speaks of how Jesus, he just didn't seek the limelight. Whereas Cyrus, through all his pomp and circumstance, he was an unavoidable figure. Jesus was someone that you seemed to almost kind of stumble upon by accident. Like the woman at the well. The Samaritan woman at the well also illustrates the third verse where we read of Jesus' gentleness and his kind care, patient care for each of us. Verse 3, a bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. I could preach a whole sermon series on that one verse there. There's a great book that our our men's study had studied at one time, um, Richard Sibbs, it's on our book table. It's called The Bruise Read. I invite you to grab that copy, one of them, and, and take it home and read it. When Isaiah says that Jesus was a bruised reed, when he says a, that a bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench, he was describing how perfectly tender Jesus is with us sinners. We are like reeds that are bruised, that is, in this sinful world, It hits us, and it hurts us. We find ourselves so bruised. And let me ask you, what does this world do with bruised reeds, typically? It discards them, is useless, tramples on them, breaks them, steals from them, gets what they can, and then lays them aside. And so Isaiah tells us something marvelous about Jesus. He did not break a bruised reed, nor did he quench a faintly burning wick. The Samaritan woman at the well was a bruised reed like like us. And the Lord was compassionate and caring with her as he challenged her to believe in him and find life in him in which she did. Bruised reeds describe how the sin of this world bruises us. The faintly burning wick or smoldering wick, on the other hand, describes our sinfulness and our foulness in this world, like a smoldering wick in a lamp that produces more smoke than light. We are the burning bag of microwave popcorn in this world. This is you. This is me. We're the sinners. And like smoldering wicks, we can put up a lot of smoke and not much light. But Isaiah, and thankfully, Jesus does not extinguish that. He does not take some water and put out that wick, which is you and me. Isaiah says that God's servant Jesus came into this world to save smoldering wicks like us. Jesus neither tramples us down nor extinguishes us with water. He meets us where we are, and he cares for us, and he transforms us. My friends, this, this is how He will change the world. This is how, as Isaiah says, he will faithfully bring forth justice. Listen, our salvation, your salvation, 
will never come from the Cyruses of this world, nor the Putins, nor the Bidens, nor the Trumps, nor the United Nations, nor the World Health Organization. Only the servant of the Lord, whom God upholds, whom God has chosen and filled with spirit beyond measure, will bring forth justice to the nations. And so God says, look, behold my servant who brings this world peace, not by stepping upon mankind and imposing demands, but by suffering for our sake, by absorbing our smoky, sin-filled, stenchy lives upon himself. So let me ask you, will you cross the line and go to him? Will you forsake whatever foolish earthly idols you cling to? And Christians, we do this. And will you drop them here and now and attach yourself to Christ? Will you continue to serve idols? Or will you lay them down and let God's servants serve you? Will you cross the line? That is what Christ calls all of his followers to experience a crossing of the line from self-centered idolatry into Christ-centered freedom. And when we make that step across the line, God will make his love for us even more well-known. That is what we see in verses 5 and through, through 9. God here is speaking to the servant, right? First he's telling us, behold him, and then God speaks to him. And as we listen in, we experience, listen, God's commitment to his son and to us, through his son. Verse six and seven show us that God will do for his people that which we fail to do on our own. God says he will give his servant as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. My friends, God, through his servant, through Christ, he delivers us out of our dark dungeons of our idolatry, and he opens our eyes, and he shines the light of his grace and his gospel upon us. Paul speaks of this one-sided work of God. This is God doing the work, not us. In Romans 5, 8, but God showed his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christian, listen, God is so committed to you. He will not withdraw his covenant of grace. Though we often break his covenant ourselves by our emotional attachments to the idols of this world. But listen, God will make his love known to us. That's what's conveyed in verse 8. I am the Lord. In the Hebrew text, it's, Yahweh, his name, right? So I am Yahweh. That is my name. My glory I give to no other. This is a good thing. Nor my praise to carved idols. I like what Ray Ortland Jr. says here. He says, listen closely. God will love us until we finally get it. He stakes his honor on that. 
Therefore, we're not confined to our prisons. God saves us by telling us, God saves us not by telling us to lose ourselves in some vaguely defined cosmic all like the New Age movement, but by taking upon himself at his cross all the wrongs we've done and by giving back to us our truest selves that we had lost so long ago. This is how God proves that he really is God. My friends, the servant who gave hope to God's people living in captivity today, back then, rather, he has come. We know who he is. This work of God is already underway. So for us, let us dump our idols and the kind of fickle commitments we have, right, to Christ and his, and his kingdom. Let us cross that line with joy, joy that leads to a song in our hearts and on our lips which leads to our second and final point, our song. The big idea here is this. The proper response of God's people when they behold God's marvelous works is to belt out with great delight. Think about this reality. Have you noticed how when something gives you great joy, you cannot help but verbally express that, your delight to others? This is because our delight is not complete until we express it outwardly to others. Wow, this book is phenomenal. You got to read it. That new restaurant is amazing. Make sure you get the mustard-encrusted chicken wings. Trust me. That would be Shippies in Southampton. I've got gift cards. No. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, which if you're in a membership class, you, you read this. The first question is, what is the chief end or the greatest purpose of man? And the answer is, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. This is our life. This is what we are to be doing as human beings. Now, a number of scholars from Piper to C.S. Lewis say that, that they're one and the same thing. To fully enjoy God is to glorify him. And we glorify God when we enjoy him. In commanding us to glorify him, God is inviting us to joy and to enjoy him as well. But will we? Will we enjoy our happy creator? Or will we seek enjoyment in things within his creation? In verse 10, Isaiah calls to all the world to join him in happy singing. Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise from the end of the earth. You know, when you come to delight in God and you gladly step across that line. Your joy in God is incomplete until you vocalize it. And any old song just won't cut it. Just as the gospel gives you a new you, so too it puts a new song in you. Song of praise, giving glory to your God who, who will not stop loving you, even if you fail in your love to him. Verses 10 and 11 tell of the Old Testament people of God that tell um, that God's design extends far beyond their small national borders to the ends of the earth, the coastlands, which symbolize the Gentile nations. God's joy in his people will be worldwide. And of course, this is, this is coming true. And soak this in. God is determined to put a new song in you. God is determined that your happiness would be properly placed in him. Have you ever 
seen football players psych themselves up before a game. Maybe, maybe you played on a football team like I have. You get in each other's faces and you're screaming and you're yelling, we're going to kill them, you know, and you're pounding on the shoulder pads. Yeah, and then you run out. That's what Isaiah, des- that's how Isaiah describes God in verse 13. Look, the Lord goes out like a mighty man. Like a man of war, he stirs up his zeal and he cries out, he shouts aloud. He shows himself mighty against his foes. Like a mighty man of war who stirs up zeal. We've got this, I've got this. We're gonna do this. God is passionate about you being passionate about him. Let me repeat that. God is passionate about you being passionate about him. He knows what's good. He knows that when we chase after other idols, it just makes us sad in the long run. He knows that the greatest happiness in the universe is found where? In him. So stop praising your week-long vacations in Aruba or your thousand Instagram likes. I've yet to get that many. But, or your new car. The things we praise, your new BFF. Listen, God is one billion times more satisfying than any of that. Set your delight on him. And then all that other stuff, which is good, will be in its proper perspective, right? Understand this about your God. His resolve to lavish you with his grace is untethered. There's nothing holding him back. He is unrestrained in his passionate pursuit of your happiness in him. He will settle for nothing less than our eternal joy in him alone, no matter what it costs himself. He is zealous to fight for our salvation, and he's willing to suffer for it. So drop the needle on the record. Sing a new song. And let us not straddle the line between complete devotion to God and devotion to our idols. We do this, do we not? And how will you know if you've fully crossed that line versus merely straddling it in a safe place? Well, when you cross the line, God will take you places that uproot your easy routines, the things you can handle on your own, your own little agenda where you can check off some boxes. See, if you can get through your day, your week, your year without a deep dependence upon God, then you're straddling the line. Ortland says, even blind people can be self-sufficient in familiar surroundings. But God wants to take us where we are helpless without him. Do you believe that? And if he takes you there, will you be okay? Yeah. That's what verse 16 is about. I will lead the blind in a way they do not know. That, that's, that's us, the blind, right? In paths that they, that they have not known. God is going to take us somewhere different. Jesus is going to take you on a path you've never been before. And it's going to be scary to live this way. He says, I will turn the darkness before them into light, the rough places into level ground. These are things I do, and I do not forsake them. 
God wants to take us where we are helpless without him. And this way of living, this living free of idols, it's a new experience for all of us. It's a path we do not know. We are blind without our Savior. It is far easier and far more comfortable to stay at the line and to not fully cross over, to relegate God to the margins, to hold off calling upon him until you're over your head. But remember, living like this is what got Israel into this problem in the first place. Listen, you and I will never be in a place of happy contentment until we cross that line completely. Surrender all our false sources of satisfaction. See them as the mockery of real happiness that they truly are. There's no greater delight to ever be experienced by us than the delight of trusting our lives to Jesus and having him lead us, not where we want to go, but where he alone can take us. So often as Christians, we tell Jesus where we want to go and we expect him to come along and grant us what? Honestly, what is it we're asking him to approve? Our idols, the things other than God that we think will make us happy. We can experience this in our marriages. Most marriages, I've officiated a lot of weddings. Boy, they are sure happy on that day. But the truth is, because we are all what? Smoking flax. We're all these smoking wicks. When you get two smoking wicks in a marriage, it tends to put off even more smoke and discord and disharmony. And our idols tend to rise up. And we can pray things while we straddle the line. We can pray and say, Jesus, would you fix my spouse? Can you help her to see, help him to see how wrong he is? This marriage would be great if you could... Jesus, if you could just fix that. Somewhere there's an idol in there for you. But what if Jesus were to say, no, no, I'm not going to fix your spouse. I'm going to work with you. I'm going to take you someplace uncomfortable that seems dark and unlevel, a place you're going to stumble, but because I'm leading you, you're going to be a completely different person. Maybe that's what the Lord is calling for you in your marriage right now. When you step across that line, you're committing to Christ to have him lead you wherever he wants to take you. Where you're not sure of the way in, let alone the way out. And so listen, the only time that you should ever ask Jesus to come towards your idol is when you're weeping over them. You recognize they've captured your love for Christ and stolen the life of joy that he has promised you. And so you ask Jesus to come so that he might help you destroy them. That is the only time you should ever ask Jesus, come my way. And when he does, he makes us oh so happy. And we sing a new song to the Lord. Isn't the book of Isaiah amazing? In 1519, so a little while ago, the Spanish conqueror Hernando Cortez anchored his ships off the Yucatan Peninsula. He had come to conquer Mexico for Spain. 
He had arrived with only 608 men, 16 horses, a few cannons, and 11 small ships. Despite the overwhelming odds, Cortez was fully committed to the mission and ordered his men to go ashore. In the middle of the night, the men awoke, and they looked back upon the sea, and they saw all the ships ablaze. They yelled, fire, fire, and some tried to to row out, to put the fires out, only to have Cortez stopping them, saying, I lit the ships on fire. Cortez knew that if his people had a means to retreat, to go back and cross back over the line, they wouldn't fully press on in the mission. But now there was no way to go back. They would conquer this new land or die trying. They crossed the line, and there's no way back. That is what Isaiah has laid before us this morning. God calls us to leave behind the life of self-absorption, self-salvation, self-sufficiency, cross the line fully over to Christ, the great servant of God, who loves us and saves us completely, who knows we are bruised reeds and smoking flax. Christ is calling us into his kingdom not to straddle the line into his kingdom, but to step completely in, to burn the ships, completely entrust our lives to him. The kingdom of heaven is like that, right? As Jesus taught, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found it and covered it up, and then in his joy, if he wasn't singing, he was at least humming, in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. Christ and his kingdom that he brings is beautiful to our souls. And a part of the beauty of who God is is that he saves us when we don't even want to be saved. And when he saves us, he saves us with such a thoroughly satisfying salvation. That is what this table here signifies. It reminds us that we are what? But bruised reeds and smoldering wicks. This is who we are. And yet we're so loved. It also reminds us that our, that our Lord, he's gentle. He's patient with us. He knows the flesh is willing, but the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He knows that we trust him, but we often fail to trust him, that we believe, but oh Lord, help my unbelief. He knows this about us. We cannot have a better Savior than this. So let us feast on his grace. And then let us sing together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are untethered in your pursuit of us we confess that nonstop we are tempted to treasure idols instead of treasuring you. We're thankful that this message from Isaiah opens our eyes to the beauty of the servant who has come and who will come again. The one who has called us into his kingdom and said, leave it all behind and follow me. I will make you fishers of men. It's good to know the Savior. It's wonderful to have him in our midst. Holy Spirit, would you help us as we feed on Christ in faith here now? Amen.